<clears throat> Some months ago, from time to time, I've brought lessons out of the book of Romans, and we're going to do that again today. And not only today, but uh, next week as well. So this is going to be two parts. Uh, <clears throat> and the journey through Romans is going to stop at chapter 8. I'd like to get through chapter 8, so we're going to uh, continue through chapter 8, uh, at which point most of the doctrinal part of Romans Paul has finished with, and he's going to be moving in more into the practical aspect of his letter. But today, as you can see, if you have a family news, we are going to be in the sixth chapter of Romans, and we will look at the first 11 verses. And next week, <clears throat> next week we will look at the, the remaining part of, of the book, verses 12 through 20, 23. So what I'd like to do very quickly today, and I won't do this next week, but is go through a very, very quick review of the first five chapters, because Paul's going to take a little bit of a switch here in chapter 6, and we want to see where it fits in. So in chapter 1, Paul states the purpose of writing the book, and that is to bring about the obedience to the faith. And in that chapter, then, he turns and talks about the power of the gospel and, and the need for salvation in chapter 1. And he is speaking primarily to Gentiles in chapter 1. Uh, and then he uh, goes to chapter 2. And as he goes, goes, goes into chapter 2, as we have divided the letter up, he turns his attention fully to the Jews. And then he concludes chapter 3 by bringing the two together and showing that, or, or, or uh, uh, forming the doctrine of salvation by faith. That's what uh, Romans is about, particularly the first eight chapters is salvation by faith. So then when we get to chapter 4, Paul demonstrates it. He demonstrates what salvation by faith is, and he uses Abraham to demonstrate it. And a couple of main points there in chapter 4 that he uses is, number one, Abraham was saved by faith both before he was circumcised and after he was circumcised. Also, we find in chapter 4 that salvation by faith, or salvation can come by no other way than by faith. Okay? And so, and there, there is where he starts discussing grace as well, yeah, yeah, more thoroughly. And then we move to chapter 5, and in chapter 5, which we, we the first part of that chapter we, we, we talked about and thought about, is the result of being justified, or the result of justification, and what that can do for us. At the, the last part of chapter 5, uh, Paul compares Adam to Jesus Christ and shows that the sin that Adam committed was very, very powerful. And I've likened it unto a ball of yarn that's been growing and growing and growing since the very first day that Adam sinned. That ball of yarn started to grow, and that represents sin. And that you can only imagine how big that ball of yarn would get. And then Jesus came along with his blood and undid all of that sin and went right back to the beginning of that ball of yarn. That's how much more powerful the blood of Christ is than that, that sin. I mean, just, just look at what that sin of Adam did over time. And so then now we come to chapter 6. Now, when I was a, a, a young person, 
younger person, much younger person, in grade school, in junior high, on in through high school, we were required to do a lot of memorization. The pro and I'm not knocking memorization. We should be remembering and memorizing as much of the scripture as we can. It's very, very useful, right, Brian? Comes in very handy. If somebody can't remember a scripture, if you remember it, you can tell them where it's at. The problem with memorization is there's not often a lot of context with it. And so especially for a young person, it's kind of hard to know how to use the verse. <clears throat> and oftentimes, we would take a verse, a really big verse, if I can put it that way, like verse 23 of chapter 6, the very last verse uh, of the chapter. And a lot of us can probably quote that, that verse, can't we? For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. That was a big one that we had to memorize. And I've, I've heard some very good entire sermons, and who knows, maybe I've given one over the years on just that verse and the word picture that we developed with uh, using the wages of sin is death. But what I want to do today is I want to back up from there. That is a conclusion that Paul reaches, or a part of a conclusion that he reaches by the time he gets to, to that point in chapter 6. What I want to do is I want to back up to the very beginning how, and see how he develops that conclusion. <clears throat> now, if you have a family news, you can see that I've entitled this the death chapter. And the reason why I've done that is because the words dead, death, or died appears about 13 times just in this chapter. So there's a heavy emphasis on that idea. So, how does chapter 6 fit in? Why is Paul writing this here? And what's, what's going on that Paul has to write this chapter? And he puts it in here. How does this chapter fit in with the concept of salvation by faith that he's been discussing all up to this point? Well, I, I think in order to do that, we need to go back to chapter 3 very quickly. If you go back to chapter 3 of Romans, we're just going to look at one verse, and yes, we're going to kind of lift it out of context, but it's not a memory verse, so we're okay. <laughs> so in chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says, And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. And so Paul states two things there in that one verse. He says that there are people, and he is writing to Christians in Rome. He is not writing to people to try and convert them to Christ. He's writing to the people in Rome. And some have been saying, this is what Paul teaches. This is what the apostles teach. And Paul says that is slanderous. He's not happy about it. And he says, some are affirming, this is what we say. And then he simply says, their condemnation is just. They stand condemned for teaching and practicing that very thing. So I think when we jump to chapter 6, I think that's what Paul is going to be dealing with. Now, if I came up to any of you at any point in your conversation, and I, I just walked up and I said, what shall we say then? 
you would probably look at me and go, what are you talking about? What do you mean? Well, that's why we did this, so we can see how this fits in. Now, what Paul is going to do here uh, in, in these first 11 verses particularly, and I want to emphasize this because I don't want anybody to come to me and say, are you saying this? Are you suggesting this? And I'm going to tell you right now, no, and you'll understand what I'm talking about. But what Paul is going to do here is uh, at the beginning of this particularly, he is going to be using logic, strictly logic. So we know what he is going to be, we know the answer, I know the answers to what some of you might ask, but I just want to emphasize Paul is approaching this very logically, and I'll point that out a couple of times as we go. So uh, the, the, the problem that he's dealing with here is more sin equals more grace. And on the surface, that idea is not necessarily... Uh, Illogical. Think about this for a minute on the surface. Let's suppose that Kyle gets up. I'll pick on Kyle today a little bit. Kyle comes up here after services and says, I have an announcement to make. <clears throat> I've, uh, I've hit the mother load. I'm doing pretty good all of a sudden. I want to do something for all of you. So he says, a week from tomorrow, what's tomorrow, the 23rd? So next Monday the 30th, I want you all to meet me, all of you in this room, I want you all to meet me downtown, and I will pay off all of your debt. Every penny of it. It doesn't matter how much it is, it doesn't matter what it is, if you owe a loan shark, I'll pay it off. It doesn't matter. So you be there, and you bring your debt on Monday the 30th, about a week from now. You know what I'd be doing? I'd go out and buy a couple of cars. I might even buy a house. I might even buy an island. And he says, that's fine. That's not even going to start to make a dent in what I have. I can pay it off. That's what I would be doing. I'd be running that debt up. Right? I've got a week to do it. You'll find out how much debt I can incur in a week. It can be a lot. So that's kind of what these people were teaching or suggesting or affirming, as Paul says, that he was teaching. Let's just sin more, and the more we sin, the more grace we're going to receive. Right? That's why Paul writes this chapter. So let's see what he has to say about it. Now, I'm not going to go through and read it first and then go back. We'll just jump in and start going through these uh, a couple of three verses at a time. Thanks to Lysander for reading that for me so that you kind of already have an idea, uh, know what we're, what we're going to be talking about. Now again, he's going to approach this logically at first. So he says, what shall we say then? And here's the question. <clears throat> are, are, we, are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? Paul says in verse 2, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So I want to comment for a minute on that phrase, may it never be, because I think it's, uh, it's significant, the, that expression there. Now, in the Greek, it has a particular meaning, but there is no English equivalent to that phrase, may it never be. There just isn't one. And so what the translators did when they were translating into the English language, they tried to use the strongest language that they could. And so, <clears throat> for instance, the King James will say, God forbid. 
maybe even, I, don't, I, I didn't look at the old American standard, uh, probably says the same thing. That's the strongest language that they could come up with. Here in the New American Standard, they say, he, uh, they translate it, may it never be. And the meaning behind that phrase is this. And uh, this, uh, this is how emphatic Paul is with regards to that idea of let's just sin more so that grace might increase. That concept behind that is whatever it is, is so far away, so far out there. It's just way, 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 way out there. Can I add a couple more ways? It's so far out, it's just an impossibility. You cannot calculate how far out it is. Vincent, in Vincent's work studies, defines it this way. May it never, let me see if I get it right. May it never have come to pass. It's so far out there, it's like it just never could happen. And that's what Paul is saying here with regards to that doctrine. Is this what you think I'm teaching? May it never be. That's an impossibility. It's so far out there. Now, let me ask a question at this point. Because he asked the question <clears throat> in verse 2, should we, uh, oh, in verse 2, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? So I'm going to ask you a question. And I know it's kind of going to be a little bit silly. But how many people do you know of that are died, have died physically? You've been to their funeral and they're buried. How many people like that do you know are walking around Skagit Valley? I'm getting a lot of, well, nobody looks. How many people can go walk around after they've died physically and go to Starbucks, go to Safeway, do whatever, go to work if they want to? You see, you don't see that because it can't happen. And this is where Paul is logically attacking this. He says, may it never be. He asks a question that the only answer is no. And so logically speaking, what he's saying is, you're talking about something that's impossible. It can't happen. There's no way. There's no way, once you have died physically, that you can then get up and go walk around and have anything more to do with the earth. It's impossible, uh, speaking logically. Now, I know, this is what I was talking about, uh, I know that God can intervene and can raise whomever he wants, but that's not what Paul's going to be talking about. Just logically speaking, what you're suggesting is impossible. It can't happen. So as we get down to verse 3 then, he's going to ask more questions. He says, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in, into Christ Jesus, and I believe that to be water baptism, have been baptized into his death? That phrase, or do you not know, it's not really a kind type of question. Um, I don't know if I should use the word snarky or not, but the idea behind it is one of, and I always want to say, arrogance, it's not, it's one of ignorance. What he's suggesting is, and I can just imagine Paul's body language here. Do you really not know, Brian, this? Are you that ignorant? That's the idea behind it. Are you that ignorant of this fact that you participated in? There's arrogance, excuse me, ignorance uh, suggested in that question by Paul. We would say, are you ignorant of the fact, oftentimes. But Paul says, or do you not know? So then in verse 4, let's read verse 4 
the, next, the next part here we're going to look at is uh, verses 4 through 7. And at this point, I think Paul begins to take them back to basics. He's going to have to explain what happened when they <clears throat> were baptized into Christ and were baptized into his death. They seem to have forgotten this, some of them. Therefore, we have been buried with him, verse 4, through baptism into death, in order that or for the purpose that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. So that's literally what happens when we go through that process of dying spiritually. We die spiritually. Christ died physically. But our spiritual death is a likeness of his physical death. So <clears throat> when Christ was living on the earth, he died, he was killed, and he went into the grave. He was buried in the earth. And he rose up by the glory of God. <clears throat> and, in, in, and in this way then, when we die spiritually, we die to sin, we die to the world. We're buried, not in the earth, but in the waters of baptism. And then we raise up, we are resurrected, just like he was. Four, in verse five, if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Now this is an interesting point that I want us to, to think about for a few minutes. First of all, he says, well, Christ uh, died, we die. Christ was buried, we're buried. Christ was raised, we are raised. It's just, just exactly like his. But he says that we are raised in his likeness, and therefore we are united with him. Now, I had a conversation at work uh, the other night with one of, the, one, of my, uh, one of my crew. My crew has grown uh, quite, a, quite a bit in the last year or so. We've hired some people down there, and so I actually have a crew. I never did. I only had one person. That's not much of a crew. Uh, but now I've got about six, uh, six or seven. I'm going to get about three more, so it's, it's growing. And I had a conversation with this guy. He just turned 30 years old. And I'm not sure how we got on it. <clears throat> but, and I'm not going to go into what we talked about, but it was a political thing. And he said, you know, I kind of think this and that and the other. And I said, well, you know, I kind of agree. I think maybe we need to do this and this and this, and we need to stop doing this. I agree with you completely. And also, not only that, so this, we had that kind of a back and forth. Well, guess what? We were united in whatever that political thing was that we were talking about. And you know what caused us to be united? It's not just that we agreed on some things there. We didn't know we agreed until we talked, until we developed a relationship. Until we developed that relationship and were able to have that conversation we didn't know we agreed, and so we were united together in that particular thing that we were talking about, but only because we have developed a relationship. What do you think that says when he says that we have been united with Christ? How can you be united with someone that you don't have a relationship with? I think that's a very significant thing that he says. He also says here, 
that we are, let's see, at the end of verse 5, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. So our resurrection from spiritual death is in the likeness of Christ's resurrection from physical death. Now this, I think, is a little bit interesting. Let's think about this for a few minutes. What was life like for Christ before he died? <clears throat> There's two or three things, maybe more, that we can put out there. But remember in Matthew chapter 24, you don't have to turn there because we're not going to look at any verses there. But the discourse there in Matthew 24 is the destruction of Jerusalem. And I think most, if not the entire chapter, is about the destruction of Jerusalem. And as he's going through this and talking, uh, telling the apostles, he's prophesying here what's going to happen in the future. The apostles ask him. They say, Lord, when are these things going to take place? And there Jesus says, remember who he is, he says, nobody knows but the Father. And he says, not even I know the time. Not even I know when it's going to happen. Now, some people will use that particular verse to show the future coming of Christ as we understand it. I don't think that's accurate. I don't think that's what he's talking about there. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And he, at that point, did not know when that was going to happen. That was Christ before death, before resurrection. What about temptation? Was Christ subject to temptation before he died? He was. And then there's the passage in Hebrews, chapter 5, verse 8. Again, we won't go there. Um, and this particular passage is, has just been forever a mind twister for me, at least. It is there in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, where, where the writer says concerning Christ, even though he was a son, the son, the son of God, he learned patience through the things he suffered. So that was Christ before he died. But what happened when he resurrected? Well, first of all, remember Matthew 28. What did he say there? He said, after he resurrected, all authority has been given to me both in heaven and on earth. At that point, he knew when the destruction of Jerusalem was going to be, take place. He didn't know it before. So things changed for him after he resurrected. Well, that's what Paul is trying to get at here. If our death, burial, and resurrection is the likeness of Christ's, what happens after we, we are resurrected out of the waters of baptism? We're united with him, which, which indicates a relationship. But things change for us, don't they? Or they should. And so, <clears throat> in verse 6 then, let's move to verse 6. Knowing this, now this is, this is where he's going to use some logic here. Knowing this, that our old self, now remember, what Paul has already said is, how can we who have died to sin continue to live in it? And he's already said, that's impossible, logically speaking. Knowing this, now that particular knowing there, I don't believe has the sarcasm with it. I think what he's saying is, 
you know this. He was a little snarky before, but he's telling you, you know this. And he's going to say something like that again. We'll get to that next week. Knowing this, that our old self, who's the old self? The one that died. Was crucified with him. It's put to death that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. I'm not going to say much about the word slaves there or servants. We'll talk about that more next week. He mentions it uh, several times in the last half of the chapter. For he who has died is freed from sin. There it is again. You cannot participate in something that you have died to, Paul says. You can't. It's impossible. If you've died to sin, you're not going to participate. You can't participate in it. Now, we all know that we can, but that's not Paul's point here. So logically speaking, he takes their, their argument and says, no, you're promoting something that's really impossible when you think about it, logically speaking. So that's why I said, now don't come to me afterwards and say, are you saying that we can't sin after we're raised from baptism? No, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what Paul's saying. But just, again, logically, we can't do it. A dead person can't walk around Skagit Valley. They just can't. So you cannot participate in what you have died to. It's, it's, imposs it's, in, it's an impossibility, Paul says. So <clears throat> if our... Resurrection, our death, burial, and resurrection is a, in a, is a likeness of Christ's. There in chapter 6, or verse 6, he says, We were crucified, uh, our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with. Let me ask you a question. How much of our bodies do we use for sin? How much? All of it, every bit of it. We use our eyes to see things that we ought not to see. We use our ears to hear things that we ought not to hear. The scripture says things, uh, things about our feet and our legs. We use them to run towards sin. We use our arms and our hands to gesture and do all kinds of things, inflict harm on other people. We use our tongues to say things that we ought not to say, and that comes from our minds, our intellect, that we use to, to say those things. So how much of our body do we use for sin? We use it all. And Paul says, when you go through this process, the exact same process that Christ went through, you will come out on the other side. That old self has been done away with. So logically speaking, you cannot use your body for sin. You've done away with it. It can't happen, logically. Now, in, in verse 7, there's a word there that I, I looked up I thought was rather interesting, and that is, for he who has died is freed from sin. You know what that word... I lost my... Oh, here it is. For he who has died is freed from sin. Do you know what that word freed means? What that word means there is rendered righteous. I think the word free is probably one of the better words that they could have come up with, at least at the time. I don't know what some of the other translations, like the English Standard or the New King James says, and I really like the New King James. 
I had a great big one. It had a lot of notes in it, and I think somebody stole it out of my car. But that, that word, did you know that the, the Bible is the most often stolen book in the world? Yeah, I've been a victim. <laughs> Either that or I just can't find it. But it, it was big. I, anyway, for he who has died is freed, has been, has been rendered righteous. So here's where Paul starts to kind of leave the logic a little bit and tells them, if you have gone through this process, this very basic process that I'm explaining to you that I think you already know, but seem to be ignorant of, when you go through this process, you have put that body of sin away. How can you take something that you've put away and bring it back and use it for sin when you have been declared righteous because of this. You see the conflict there? Logically, you, it can't happen. Now, <clears throat> so in verse 8, as we begin to, to start drawing this to a close, this, at least this section, he goes on and says, now, when, he's, when he says now, oftentimes he's, he's moving on to something else or he's going to start drawing a conclusion, something like that. Now, he said all this, brought them back to basics. We've talked about what we do with the body when we're resurrected, buried and resurrected. He says now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. There's the unity. There's the relationship. And when he says, if we have died with Christ... I think that's, that he's using that word if like, like we do. It's uh, something that's pretty obvious, and we do that all the time. Well, if, if you don't know that, then, right? I think that's the way that he is using the word if there. Not that they don't know. He knows they know it. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. That's what the unity is. We shall live with him. Knowing, there it is again, knowing, you know this, that Christ, having been raised from the, from the dead, is never to die again. What happens when we raise from spiritual death, brethren? We're never to die again. Our death is in his likeness, in the likeness of his. Never to die again, and death no longer is master over him. Death is no longer master over Christ. What does that say about us? If we're united with him in his resurrection, sin no longer is master over us. <clears throat> now, a couple weeks ago in the uh, Sunday afternoon class, we talked a little bit about that word master. You remember Cain? Just before he killed his brother Abel, what did God tell him? He said, Cain, why is your countenance down? And he said, you better take heed and deal with this. I'm kind of paraphrasing because he said, sin is crouching at the door. That word crouching means it's ready to pounce. And we'll, we'll understand that a little bit more when we get to chapter 7. Because he says, sin taking opportunity through the law. That's what sin looks like when it's crouching. It's getting ready to take advantage of you through the law. But he says, he tells Cain that sin is at the door. It's crouching at the door. He says, but you must master it. And we talked a little bit about that. 
But you know what that word master means there? It means dominion. Sin will no longer have dominion over you. And he told Cain, you must master sin. When Jesus Christ was resurrected, sin no longer and death no longer had dominion over him. Not that sin did before, but at least he was able to be tempted before. Sin no longer has master over him. Death, no, or excuse me, death no longer is master over him. What does that say about our relationship with him? Sin or death, uh, spiritual death, which is brought about by sin, no longer has dominion over us if we've learned to master it. And that's the problem with these people that are teaching this. They had not mastered it. They had made sin to be dominion over them rather than the other way around. So Christ died, we died. Christ was raised, we were raised. Christ mastered sin, we too must master sin. Now in verse 10, there's something quite interesting here that uh, I, I got to thinking about. And so I, I want to share it with you. In verse 10, he says, For the death that he died, that Christ died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Is our life that we now live, after having been resurrected, do we live our lives to God? Pretty good question, I think. But I want to key in for a minute on that phrase, he died to sin. And when, let's turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. I want to read something because I really got to thinking about this and I asked myself the question, how can that be? How could Christ have died to sin? I mean, it's pretty easy for me to understand how I do because I've, I've committed a lot of sin. And when you commit sin, you die uh, spiritually. So turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. And this is, this is what I was thinking about over here. In verse 21, he says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. So how in the world can Christ Die to sin when he didn't commit it. Not one time. This was a little bit baffling to me. But here's what I think. And so, alert, this is just what I think. Because I have not found any scripture that specifically says, here's how he died to sin. Being perfect, being blameless, having never sinned. Like I said, it's easy for me to understand it. I've done it. I've committed the sin. So consider this for a minute. Let's move to the scene of the cross. 
and Christ is there, <clears throat> and he's hanging on that cross. Carm's words this morning really segue very well with, with, with this word picture here that we're developing. He is hanging on the cross. He's bruised. His body is broken. No bones were broken, but his body was broken. He was bloody from head to toe. He had, I couldn't find them. I have some what's known as crucifix thorns at home that are not exactly the same thing, but they're a biological cousin to the ones that were put on Christ's head. Those thorns are about an inch and a half, two inches long and very, very sharp. He had that crown of thorns. They didn't just kind of kindly set it on there. They mashed that thing down on his head. It was there to inflict pain. And the Romans were experts at that. He is bloodied. He's exhausted from the beatings. He's exhausted from having carried his own cross out there. And he's forsaken. He looks up and says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That word there, forsaken, simply means abandoned. So if you can picture Christ on the cross, in that condition, looking up, pleading to God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? And God, this is a word picture, turning and going, yep, I've abandoned you for a moment. I'm not going to save you from this. At that point, at that point, that big ball of yarn, all that sin going all the way back to Adam, and all the sin that would ever come after, after he was raised, was put on him. God turned, abandoned him to bear that sin. He died to sin. And he died of a broken heart. So he died to sin. Let's go back to Romans. He died to sin once for all. Verse 10. And the life he lives... He lives to God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, again, going back to that scene on the cross where he's forsaken, abandoned by God briefly, abandoned by God to go into the grave, Paul says, <clears throat> well, I'm just going to read it real quick because I'm afraid I'm going to misquote it. Paul says, if I can get there, it's moving on me a little bit. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the end of that chapter, verse 20. Uh, excuse me, um, verse 21. He, God, he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ died to sin, going through that process. And God took it, turned, turned on him, didn't turn on him, turned away from him, and allowed him to go through that and abandon him to bear that sin, actually becoming sin for us. Now Paul has 
moved away from logic here in this argument. And he's appealed to these people to abandon their foolish, stupid thinking and come back and be united with Christ in the likeness of his death, burial, and resurrection. That we can be God's righteousness through him. Verse 11 as we, as, we begin to as we conclude here in a minute, he says, <clears throat> that's Romans 8. Going back one more page. He says in verse 11, even so, or in the same way, in the same manner, as Christ has died and he lives and he lives his life to God, even so, you do the same thing. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. No more logic there. It's a flat-out appeal to develop that relationship with Christ. It's not impossible to never sin again after we're raised, but Paul's point was you're, you're being a fool if you think that way. That's not logical. And here is the, the conclusion of the matter. You, just like he did, need to master sin. Just like he needed to, and he didn't. He failed at it. You need to master sin. You need to consider yourself and act upon it in this way. And stop teaching that. Stop thinking that. It's wrong, wrong, false, false, any other words you want to put on it. So as we come to a close, again, we'll pick up with verse 12 next week. Paul says to the Romans, proffering this teaching, which is alive and well today, by the way. Heck, any of you guys remember the Boston Movement? You young people know about the Boston Movement? You heard of it? The guy that, that started, he didn't start it, he took it from the, the, the church down in Florida because the guy that actually started it was kicked out because of some terrible sin. And they didn't want their name been associated. So this guy went up to Boston, took what he had learned from that, and grew it. His name is Kip McKean. And he drew a lot of people away to that teaching. And you know what one of the basis of that teaching was? This right here. Sin is of no consequence. We live under grace. There are people that were committing fornication who were members of that, that group. They were committing fornication, and if you challenge them on it, they'd say, yeah, I know it's wrong, but we live under grace, so it's okay. That guy is still alive, and he's still active, Kit McKean. He's still out there promoting and teaching this stuff. So it's alive and well today. Paul says, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ. So I leave you with this question to, to consider. How do you consider yourself? Do you consider yourself in the same way? Or have you succumbed to the foolishness of believing that you can continue to do something that logically is not possible?